everybody, and welcome to a new edition of the award-winning Talking About Cars, where it's all about everybody has a car story, from celebrities to car personalities. I'm Randy Cardoon, and this week, it's legend time. 44 years as the voice of the NHRA, went into the Motorsports Hall of Fame uh, in 2016, and a voice, the moment you hear the voice, you suddenly smell the nitromethane. I, I'm, I'm getting ready. Dave McClellan joining us in Studio 25. Dave, thanks for joining me. Hey, Randy, thank you. And it's an honor to be on the program. And it's just a, a great sport and a great way to tell people what it's all about. Oh, absolutely. And what did, am I kidding? Are you smelling the nitromethane now? Yeah. I'm just like, holy cow. Shirley's about, Shirley Muldowney is about to go down the uh, straightaway right now. Uh, it, it is so much fun to have you on the show. And, and what we usually do is right off the top, we, we go back in time and we talk a little bit about cars and the ones that, when you were young, I'm going to let you go back into the Wayback Machine. And I want to know the first car when you were growing up that you remember noticing that kind of put you on that I'm a car guy kind of track. Well, my dad uh, didn't like the whole car concept and i was getting ready to get the first car i owned and he says okay i'll get it for you well that was not quite as well received after he brought me in a plymouth four-door sedan 1939 version now i am not uh, capable of driving in 1939 but uh, when I did turn 16 it was kind of a ratty thing and all of this and I drove that car for a long time but uh, I don't know whether that planted the seed for my lifelong interest in cars or just the sheer fact that they built a racetrack right around my little hometown of uh, Liberty, Missouri, across the river, and that was some of the first drag racing I ever saw. And from that point on, that's where I've been. I, I want to go back to your dad, because what was it like having a guy who, you say he wasn't into the car thing. I mean, did, was he kind of like force kicking and screaming, dragging to get a, we, vehicles? What did you guys use for transportation? Well, he had a car uh -huh. because he was working in the insurance business at that time, and he had the uh, means of getting around. But he never did get hooked on the car thing like his uh. beloved son did. <laughs> and with that, he uh, didn't fight it but never could understand it. I mean, it was years before he understood what I was doing in the racing world, and I was attempting to make a living at it, and I did. They finally admitted that maybe it's not all that bad, because I was working at the time in radio and television. I spent about almost 20 years in those industries as a means of income. And with that... Uh, it was my mother, I think, probably had the biggest hill to climb, talking about me, about her son, the television personality, and her son, the drag race announcing. When you first started to get into radio and TV, 
Uh, was that the direction you saw yourself going? Did you want to be a big-time DJ? What? Who were the guys you used to look up to in radio and television at that time that, that got you on some sort of career path? Well, I grew up in the Kansas City, Missouri area, and uh, there were the typical good music stations you know today. The hard rock wasn't necessarily there. What? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> now, that that's how you know you're old. <laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. But uh, with that, I got interested in the drag racing thing in 1955 was the first drag race I ever went to. I graduated from high school in 1954. So in the... Two years prior or after that, I tried to get to a drag race any time I could find one. They built the one in Kansas City. I went away to Iowa for college. And the purpose of that was to get uh, some time on a microphone so I could go in and apply for a job. And I had experience. Mm -hmm. Amazing what it requires. But uh, that got me into the broadcasting business. And at the same time, I've continued my interest in the drag racing world, and eventually they all came together. Did you want to be a car guy like that in the drag racing world to begin with, or did you have visions of being the next Arthur Godfrey or the next uh, Steve Allen or anybody like that? I, w I was interested in football. Oh. I was going to become a football coach. The first year of college, I went and started taking that, and I said, this isn't what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And the college offered a one-time only broadcast course. They had a wire recorder. They had a camera tripod on wheels with a cardboard box on the top of it. That was your camera. And the uh, recording device was just a wire recorder. Now, in this modern time, you say a wire recorder, and the guy looks at you or girl, <laughs> what are you talking about? But that was how I got started. And I said, do you mean that somebody will pay me money? to sit and talk and uh, the guy said yeah beats working for a living <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 55 years here i am <laughs> oh wow that that's incredible and the fact that you've continued it you've moved on and you've done so well in your career so you got that opportunity to do some tv and some uh radio i assume in kansas city in that area in that area but uh the first job i had was when I went to the first school, and then I went to Iowa State. At the time, it was the only Midwestern college that had radio and television courses. And I ended up transferring from Missouri to Iowa, working at the college radio station and the college television station. Forgetting classes on anything. It, it, <laughs> That's a typical college guy that wants to be on broadcast TV exactly. or anything else. All I, was, <laughs> I all, remember that. <laughs> all I was doing was trying to get 
some exposure, some experience. And they told me a good friend of my family was a uh, noted uh, newscaster in Kansas City. His name was Randall Jesse. And before I moved to the Iowa State, my dad took me in, told Randall Jesse what I wanted to do, and Jesse says, get some experience. All the rest of it doesn't matter at all. I said, but you got to have the experience to get the first job. And he said, well, uh-huh, the conundrum. you get it from an educational source. And that's what I did. I worked the FM radio station, W-O-I-F-M, classical music. Lord, I hate it to this day. (laughs) (laughs) When you were doing the classical music, Mm -hmm. and I had to do this too at my campus radio station in Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, I had this, uh, I, I kind of played along with it because I, I decided to come up with a stuffy, hello, you're listening to, you know, and, and we called it Sir Reginald at the time. Did you feel like you could come up with a classy, stuffy uh, Texaco Metropolitan Opera voice or did you use your own? I used my own. Oh, okay. I've, I've never tried to duplicate anybody else. Okay. Okay. That's now, that's the right way to I've, do it. I've had a lot of people try to duplicate me, mm-hmm. and they say, what do you do? And I says, I talk. What else is there? Did you have these pipes when you were in college? Or, yeah. Or did, oh, yeah. yeah. I had them when I was in high school. Really? Never knew what I had until I got involved in that college situation and uh-huh. wanting to do that kind of work. I always like to use the old Gary Owens analogy that uh, my big boy voice, where you know it's a oh, device yeah. that that you half, it, it, if you now. attach it, it uh, resembles half a bow tie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, but that was how I kind of worked my way into the business. I got some experience at the college, so I could go in and apply for a job. And the program director says, "Well, what what have you done?" And you can honestly say i've done all this what were you driving in college you said your first car was at plymouth was that what it was yeah uh when i went to iowa state i bought a 1939 chevy coupe nice little car nice little old lady that sold it to me and i drove that car for quite some time until i tore it apart and put a buick engine in it and did a bunch of other things Mm -hmm. but uh it, it was trying to mix the two, your television and radio work and the racing work. I went to my first drag race in Kansas City in 1955, brand new racetrack. 1956, they had the NHRA Nationals in Kansas City, and I was at that. But there was no great strong effort. Until a couple of three years later, I started picking up some uh, thoughts of maybe trying to be an announcer. That came about uh, in Carlisle, Arkansas. Don Garlitz and Eddie Hill were having a match race. And it was on an airport runway. And the owner-operator 
was a friend of mine, and I was standing out on the starting line with the gentleman that owned the place. And here came Garlitz, and here came Hill, and there was no PA. He says, I wonder if it broke. And I said, I don't know. His mouth's moving. (laughs) (laughs) But what it was, he couldn't talk, the announcer. He was so awestruck by the two drivers that were involved in the match race that he was just standing. Now, understand, we're not in a magnificent structure. Mm -hmm. We're on the back of a flatbed trailer. And the only thing uh, that you could even consider as something nice was an open tent that went over the top of you. So the Arkansas sun didn't beat you up. Well, I turned to the guy and I said, you know, I work in radio and TV. I says, you mind if I try? He says, couldn't do any work. (laughs) So with that vote of confidence, I uh, climbed up on the flatbed trailer and started announcing. Was that your first remote, so to speak? First. first Or your PA announcing? Yeah. Wow. Okay. That was the first time I ever tried that. And I said, this is pretty good. (laughs) And I said, even if you didn't get paid, which I didn't, but you were elevated. You had a much better view than the guy at ground level in those days. On airport runways particularly, there were no grandstands. You lined up however big the crowd was, determined how deep you were on the fence. And I said, this isn't bad at all. So I started soliciting work and kind of let everybody know you're available exactly and i'd say within three years i was probably gone the bulk of the summer on a weekend somewhere announcing races and that is what led to a lifelong career in the biz that is neat and and there were so many personalities that in the beginning in in that era really when you think about it i mean what what is so successful about getting a sport into the people's mindset not necessarily the sport itself but the personalities that are involved in the sport and and you had so many of them then yeah it uh it's something you need to always remember that The people that do this are people. They're not some superstar or anything. They like to think they are in some cases, just like announcers, you know? No, don't frown. No, no. I'm rolling my eyes. No, I don't don't mean rolling my eyes like that. I mean, really? But Announcers with an ego? What? Go yeah, ahead. All right. You took up my airtime. What are you talking about? Sorry, go ahead. No, it was just a, uh interesting way to break into the business. And I started doing NHRA's national events in 61. Mm-hmm. Uh, my companion for 60-plus years. <laughs> Your wife is here in the studio watching. <laughs> no, she's put up with this guy straight. for sixty years. Huh? Okay, good. It's nice to know it can happen. Yeah, but it just uh, developed, 
I obviously did a pretty good job because it was readily available if I wanted to try to go somewhere in the country and announce a race. Mm -hmm. And it ended up, that's what I did. That's neat. But the thing is, you were a car guy going into it. Right. It's not like you were just given some announcer job and you went, okay, here we go. No, nobody handed you a script. Right. That's the interesting thing about race announcing. You are the victim of the product. If you think about that, if the stuff on the racetrack isn't any good, you're going to have a hard time for a three, four-hour day. Well, you look up on YouTube, you could go on YouTube, and you could see, Dave, all sorts of uh, videos of you live at racetracks, some play-by-play calls that you've done. Obviously, the play-by-play calls are off the top of your head because you're reporting as you yeah. see it. But the thing is, you're when you're doing and you're standing up in front of it, doing an open or something like that, that's not something that you read off of cue cards. That's something that you actually are doing, the building the drama, if you will, and, and you're doing it off the top of your head. Yeah. That's, uh, there's probably not 10 shows I've done that were scripted. Hmm. And the way we would do it in the early days, it was a one-hour show. So you had all that racing to condense down into actually about 45, 46 minutes of airtime. So you had to be on the ball and make it exciting, make it interesting and just blow your way through it. And that's the way the bulk of the television was handled in the early stages of it. Um, It was interesting when we went to live television and live coverage, and it has its peaks and valleys. Uh, There's good things about it. There's things that are not so good, at least from my position. Give me a give me a not so good. You got a top fuel car sitting on the oh. starting line. <laughs> yes, and true. when the light goes green, in five seconds, that's it. Now, what do you do with that five seconds? What do you do with that whole concept? And of, you didn't necessarily have cameras in front of you or screens in front of you that you could actually see the side shot or anything like that. You were just basically, I assume, at the beginning operating with cameras that were pretty much where you were behind all the action, correct? Yeah. uh, The early days, you just didn't rely on the camera giving you the whole story. So you had to be able to handle it as if there was no television coverage at all. It it was an interesting time. And now they're doing like a six-hour live show on some things. Yeah. And it's tif- difficult to keep the energy level up, and that's the biggest problem that I see they have, and that's my personal opinion, is how do you keep the energy level up that is warranted by the action on the racetrack? And if uh, that action is something that needs to be explained and reported and all of this, you've got to figure out how are you going to fit that in the time the director-producer allocates to you. Right. You know, you are a tool. You're not the guy that runs the show. Absolutely. 
Well, they have. That's why they have reporters, and that's why they have all these other oh, yeah. people. And they they tell stories nowadays, and they do a lot of different things. And it's and I assume at that point you had replays, and you could do all sorts of other things. Yeah, as the years went by, we obviously kept up with as much of the technology improvements that we could, mm-hmm. and uh, it has developed into an incredible show. I got to ask you this, and you probably, I assume you keep track of the NHRA. You keep watching oh, their sure. events. Uh, I've been watching from a distance what uh, what John Force's racing team is going through, where their cars are exploding and all this other crazy stuff. They're going through a lot of money is yeah. what they're going through. And that's not easy for uh, any team, uh, no less a team that uh, has changed sponsors from time right. to time. Um, is it me, or is, this, or, or is this something that you just don't see that often with one team having so many problems with the engines? Well, it, it's hard to say what... The problem is, I'm sure that the crew and John know what it is, but you have built your cars to try this uh, technique or combination, if you would, mm-hmm. and it's not working, but you got to figure out how do we go back to get it back stable and not exploding it every time you go down there and be successful with it. They, fortunately, are funded well enough to do some experimentation, and that may be part of what's blowing up. We, You never really know. You know, you're in the tower, you're talking, and you go out and you beg for bits, and <laughs> sometimes you get uh, an answer, sometimes you don't. Ron Caps was quoted um Today, as a matter of fact, or at least uh, when we uh, brought when we recorded this, uh, Ron Cap said, "Funny cars are the most unbelievable things to drive." Uh, he he was talking about how I would imagine holding on and and just the way the whole situation is. Have you ever driven one, even if it's twenty miles an hour down a straightaway to try it? Have you ever gotten behind the wheel and and given something like that a shot? I've driven. Alcohol dragsters uh, in Frank Hawley's school. Mm-hmm. I uh, have driven funny cars in Frank Hawley's school. I went to Roy Hill's Pro Stock uh, school. And I have had as my own in I guess he was probably 16, your old son, that all he would wait for was to be able to go drive race cars. So he had a 57 Chevy with a big block. We got the Fiat that I picked up in Shreveport, Louisiana from some good friends. They had quit running it. It was parked in a garage. And they said, you want it? Take it. Well, I've had it for 25, 30 years now. And, uh, what year is that? Uh, it's a body of about 1939, mm-hmm. Fiat Topolino. Okay. It was built in 1963, mm-hmm. somewhere in that neighborhood. A uh, chassis builder on the West Coast built the chassis, shipped it to Louisiana, they finished it out with the body on it and the whole bit and raced it with a blown Oldsmobile. Uh, it sat. I got it, took the uh, power plant that was in it out, 
put in a big block Chevy and a Turbo 400, and I went racing. Describe the describe the experience when you did the funny car. What was that like? Well, this, in a school environment, you rarely get the opportunity to stand on it all the way. But it was just as uh, incredible as was the dragster. You hit it, and the next thing you know, you're passing through the traps at 210, 220. These were alcohol cars. And that's a pretty good ride. Yeah. That's a pretty good ride. Yeah, that'll put hair on you. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a place on right near the 60 freeway, that little auto zone or whatever they call yeah. it, uh, that has the little dragster thing in it, and you get in it, and you floor it, and you go boom, boom, you know, and it's really fast, and then there's these gears that stop it before. But I think uh, it's been oh, yeah. on TV, you know, the kids one. I, uh, and I say kids, but I, I tried it once, and there's some G-forces even on that. Oh, yeah. And uh, my oldest son has been a drag racer since he was able to walk. Ah. His son is a multiple-time champion out at Fontana and uh, has achieved a great deal. So it's hereditary in a way. The other son is an outdoors person, another uh, boy. His son is out in the uh, wilderness, climbing mountains and doing all that. So it, it's been a key in this family for my entire life. So, hmm. Does your wife drive race cars? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> No? Okay. Okay. I just thought I'd ask. Oh, you know, that's quite Somebody's right. got to drive the speed limit, for heaven's sake. Come on. Uh-huh. I can I can understand that completely. Okay, so we've gone through your first car. What what kind of car is in your garage right now? At one time, I think you had uh, a 70 uh, Grand Sport? I have a 70 Grand Sport 455 convertible four-speed. Wow. Yeah. They didn't make many of those, did they? No. 127 is supposedly... The I, number. I saw somewhere on Facebook that you were trying to sell it at one point. I was. I it's <clears> it's <throat> up for sale now. Mm-hmm. Commercial plug included. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got that. Anyhow, it uh, it's it's an extremely valuable car from the standpoint of uh, its history and the qualities of it, but. Uh, I also had a 55 Chevy two-door sedan, uh, Del Rey, that I sold here not long ago. I'm trying to get things condensed down a little bit. As What's the most amount of cars you ever had? Oh, my God. In your garage. I don't mean total, oh, but like at on. one time. How about just the whole neighborhood around it, parked in other people's driveways, ah, okay. blocking their sidewalks? <laughs> It happened one time so bad that it was so bad at home that the police stopped and came in and were going to cite us for running an automotive business. Oh, man. This is up in the hills of La Crescenta. And she, my wife, says, I got all the paperwork on each one of them. Do you want to see it? So they left. Mm-hmm. But we at one time had 16 or 17 cars, trucks, trailers, 
You good? Note to self, let me make sure my wife <laughs> listens to this podcast. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, just want to make sure, you know. No, I mean, but... Uh, it's been a part of our life the entire time. Biggest, most cars you could ever fit in a garage that two. you've had. So you just have a two-car garage. I just have a two-car garage, and most of the time it had something in it that was uh, on the point of destruction or reconstruction. Right. In other words, it didn't move. So you had like a big backyard? No, no. I live on a <laughs> I live on a hillside. I sure see. A lot okay. of curb parking, though. Oh yeah, I was going to say. In case anybody ever had a party in your neighborhood, they'd never be able to have parking on the street. No, that... Okay, well, I, I could completely get that. Yeah. What's the one car that you used to have that you wish you could get back? Wow. One that maybe you just loved, and man, I had to get rid of this for some reason, but that, nah, right? But boy, wouldn't that be great to have that car back or know where it is? And this is partially the most recent, but I would say that 55 Chevy was really a nice car. And we did a bunch of stuff, we being my son and a few others, but it was really a nice car. And they are extremely popular. They're rare, as was indicated by the money I got for it. But it uh, it's uh, difficult to pick anything. You love them all. Oh, yeah. There's always know. a reason to have them. Oh, my God, yes. I can always justify. How long did you hang on to that Plymouth, the, your first car, or the one you had in high school or whatever? Until I blew the exhaust off of it, turning the key on and off, coasting down a hill in gear. Um, and you did that why? I, you could make noise. <laughs> you could make noise. I see. It was okay. A, it was a hilly town, uh -huh. and you'd drive up to the top of the hill, you'd go over the edge, and on your way down, don't hit the brakes. Just turn the key on and off. Oh, so so it would catch and it would suddenly go, whoa. Yeah, no, okay. it'd go boom. Oh. And so then that went off. You left your foot off the throttle. And after count to three or so, you'd turn it back on. Gas had compiled in the it. It Dave, made a lot of noise. Dave McClellan, ladies and gentlemen, juvenile delinquent right here with hey, us man. on the uh, Talking About Cars podcast. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. I, I can completely get that. Oh, yeah. But that was in 1953 and four. Right. Of course. You've got to understand times were a little different True. in those days. Okay. I, I was kidding about the juvenile delinquent part. That's all right. A little bit. Um, I'm sure right now at this point you're not looking for any new cars or any classic cars or anything like that but if if you wanted to get one what would it be what's on number one and because we all have them all car guys have a list of cars that i would want somewhere down the line what's what's number one or number two or both for dave mcclellan wow now you put me on a really hot seat um i am so into cutting back I can't even tell you what I would like to have. Um, I would easily take the 55 back. I uh, made three hot rod power tours with it, mm. three with the uh, Buick. I also bought new a C6 Corvette, and we took it on the power tour one year. But uh, 
I would probably say a nice small roadster would be fine. I had a 29 roadster pickup. Mm-hmm. Nice car. Nice car. That uh, was fun to drive, was really an attractive piece, but you were so cramped in it that I said never again, and I haven't. <laughs> I want to get your thoughts as well um, about Tom McEwen, who sure. passed away recently. But before we do that, joining us now... Our good buddy and partial sometimes co-host here on Talking About Cars, our good friend Bob Beck, who's in uh, lovely Bowling Green, Kentucky, for the big uh, hot rod reunion out there. Bob, how are you? You're here with Dave McClellan. Hi, Hi Dave. I am so great. The weather is beautiful here for Bowling Green. Uh, we're at the mid-80s. The temperature's nice and comfortable. Humidity's not as high as usual. We don't have any rain, which is uh, uh, normal, but uh, it is... It's just a great event. Uh, it sounds like it. And, of course, Dave, you've been to many of these, too. Oh, I was there in 1974 when NHRA brought a first event, major event there. And uh, you run into a lot of weather back there, I can tell you for sure. So, Bob, tell us a little bit about what's been happening out there. Um, you've seen a lot of cars. Have you seen a lot of uh, interesting people? We have had a record cars entered in the race. Nearly 500 cars have shown up this year, all the way from California to New York City. They've come into Bowling Green for the Hot Rod Reunion. It's the 16th Holly National Hot Rod Reunion, and it's gotten bigger and better. There are well over 2,000 show cars as well on the grass. So it is an amazing event. Right now what we're doing is we're collecting cars. We're opening up the staging lanes to let street cars run down the quarter mile at each bend. 2,000 cars out there, uh, show cars? Yeah, it's, it's a great turnout. I'll tell you what, it's the best. They've had a record number of spectators, a record number of cars entered both in the race and in the show. Amazing what good weather will do for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they expected rain yesterday. We didn't get it. Uh, we ended up uh, actually in the hot rod cruise night at the famous Bowling Green minor league baseball team called the Hot Rods. Ah. So we, had, we had a cruise line right out in front of the stadium, and the Hot Rods played a doubleheader for us. It was it was really neat. I heard you did some announcing? I did some announcing in the local radio station there. We, we talked about the Hot Rod reunion, and uh, they asked me if I'd be interested in playing baseball. I said, it has to go wheels on it. I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so did you get a chance to do any play-by-play? No, they wouldn't let me because what? I, I told them I basically didn't know what the heck they were doing out <laughs> oh, there. Oh, man. Bob, Bob, do we, does Dave and I have to tell you the main stance of any opportunity you get in broadcasting? You never tell them, I don't know how to do it. Dave, am I right or am I oh, right? Oh, you're so right. <laughs> oh, I, never, I never told them I didn't know how. They assumed it because it was a car guy. Ah. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, well, you you can't under you can't underestimate what a car guy knows. That's all I can say. So that's kind of no, it, it. It was a good night. The baseball, the hot rods won, uh, and it, it was a really good turnout. We're only a couple of miles away from the Corvette Museum, where we're going tomorrow night to have our honorees. Uh, Dave, you you hosted the honorees at the California Hot Rod Reunion, right? And Bob Five's going to be hosting tomorrow night. We're going to be at the uh, Corvette Museum. 
That's a cool place. Now, I, that's that's the Corvette Museum where they kind of had the implosion and the Corvette got yeah. sucked down into that thing. Now, were you there, Dave, when that No, happened? I wasn't there, but I knew exactly what it was because uh, we had a second home in Nashville for a lot of years. And we had been to the museum several times. I got to know the director of it, such as that. And I pick up the paper one morning, and here's this giant hole in the floor at that museum and six or seven Corvettes down in the hole. And I thought, boy, that's that's strange. Yeah, and Bob, you actually had a chance to see what it looks like uh, recently. Uh, what did you notice? Well, I was there uh, just yesterday. We went uh, our annual pilgrimage to the Corvette Museum. And what they've done, they've refinished the whole floor, restructured it. The caverns below, they didn't know existed. But now they do, and they're exploring the caverns. There's actually an entrance into the underground area that is right there in the middle of the museum where it collapsed. They pulled out all the cars. They did the final restoration on the last car that they could restore. That was a 62 Corvette. The others that were damaged beyond repair are still on display now in as condition as they pulled them out of the hole. So they've got the mud on them. They're crushed. They're never going to fix these cars. They can't. So they have them on a permanent display along with the other cars that went in the hole, and they've restored all of them. Now, one of the cars was a very significant Corvette. I believe it was one of the last Corvettes off the assembly line for that particular model run. One person who was there when that car was built had retired. They brought her back, and every panel on the car has now been signed by someone who put it together or helped put it together. And she was the last person that had to replace one part. Wow, that's kind of interesting. Wow, the, the fact that they signed, had the panel signed and the whole thing, that's kind of... Yeah, that is, because uh, it's an incredibly good museum, particularly if you're a Corvette fan. And with that, they keep improving it all the time. Yeah, you are a big Corvette fan. Bob is a big Corvette fan. Yeah. Yep, I and, are. We, and I we, drive we a Challenger. Up. I'm sorry, what? It's not your fault, but we understand. You're a Mopar guy. <laughs> I set myself uh, up for that. I had one of those, two of them, actually. Did you? Yeah. The older ones, the newer ones, which? No, the older ones. Mm -hmm. uh, I ran a racetrack for a, a pair of co-owners, and when I got into town and moving the family there, uh, he came up to me and he says, what kind of car do you want? And after they woke me up from the shock, yeah. I said, uh, a Dodge. The dealership down there was supportive of the racetrack. So I went and got a Dodge Challenger. Challenger. Nice. Yellow with a black uh, roof, the black uh, vinyl, stuff. vinyl top. Yeah, yeah vinyl top. And... Uh, 383 power plant, so it wasn't a big uh, drinker and uh, of gasoline. And with that, uh, I had that as a company car. That was your company car? Uh-huh. Love that kind of company. That's, yeah. that's pretty good company, Bob. I don't know if we've ever had cars like that for our business. <laughs> Go but. for the oil industry. You'd be amazed what goes on there. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. I feel much better now that I'm not outnumbered by guys who are complete Chevy people, although I bought a Chevy Malibu some months ago for my daughter. But that's another story. So aside from yourself, uh, any other personalities of big, big major note going to be there? 
Well, we had Ohio George is here, uh, Gasser Fame, uh, Big Daddy Don Garlis is out there, Bob Moravis, Floyd Lippincott Jr., the uh, driver of the freight train. He's actually selling T-shirts in the T-shirt booth. That's how involved he gets with this. Very uh, nice. And there's, uh, and the guys that made the history are all over the place. It's just a matter of corralling them all at once. And uh, as I said, when you when you first called in. All right, then. And on that note, I'll let you get back to what you're doing. Okay. All right, Bob, have fun. I appreciate you checking in, and we'll uh, talk to you soon on the show. Take care, Bob. All right. Say hi for me. <laughs> I will. I will do that, Dave. Thank you very much. We'll see you when we get back in town. You bet. All right, that's Bob Beck from Bowling Green, where uh, the Hot Rod reunion is going on. That was a lot of fun talking to him. I was looking and doing a little research. By the way, are you even on Wikipedia? Do you know what Wikipedia is? I can't say it. I don't even know. Okay, Wikipedia <laughs> no. is kind of like this thing online where, you, where a lot of people's bios are on. Oh, And I was no. looking for Dave McClellan, and I figured Dave McClellan's got to be on Wikipedia. And there are several Dave McClellans. There's an actor. There's some other guy. There's a doctor. There's a doctor, a psychologist yeah. or something. And I thought, wow, Dave but, is so talented. But if you hit the right button, I pop up. That's true, but <laughs> I'm going to have to be on Facebook for that. So that I completely get it. So anyway, one of the things, of course, when you were named to the uh, Hall of Fame, there are a lot of names on it. The big note, Don Garlitz, Shirley Muldowney, Don Prudhomme, Connie Coletta. I mean, Joe Amato, the list is goes on and on yeah. and on. Tom McEwen's name is not on it. And I was always curious, and, and for those who don't know, by this time you're listening to this, you probably know that Tom passed away some time back. Is Tom McEwen a guy that with all he's done, not necessarily on the track, publicity-wise, and, and getting the stuff out there, being a spokesman, is he a guy you think he deserves to be a Hall of Famer? Oh, yes, without question. It was a remarkable era in the sport of drag racing when he was able to put together the Hot Wheels program, the snake and the mongoose. And with that, it really made an impression on the marketing world that now made it possible for racers to use corporate money and use their vehicle as the advertising base. And he was a master of that. He really uh, was sincere in the efforts to get the information out for the product. He and Don Prudhomme, uh, as diametrically opposed as one could even imagine. They uh, brought to the sport the first really legitimate big profit or big um, money deal with the Hot Wheels thing. Um, I had the opportunity to do some work for Mattel and just incredible people coming, even at this stage of the life of the Hot Wheels cars in terms of drag racing, they're still flocking to it. I emceed a uh, program for both Prudhomme and McEwen, and I mean, the room was standing room only. It was just a, a real awakening to realize how important that single task that he put together for the Hot Wheels 
uh, has paid such dividends. And that's a long time ago. Right, we're talking first done. 60s yeah, around that time. Uh, 70s. Yeah, 60s. Yeah, well, Hot Wheels actually hit their peak, and and I only know this because being a Matchbox aficionado of that day, yeah. about yay high to a grasshopper, um, we all know that Matchbox went to Superfast in 1970 because Hot Wheels showed up somewhere in the late <laughs> yeah. 60s and changed the dynamic of everything. Yeah. But... But you're right. I, I think, and as a driver too. I mean, granted, he didn't have any win, as many wins as some of these other guys. And, and but it seemed to me he was just a lightning rod. He was such a personality. Yeah, at uh, very low key, you rarely saw him agitated externally, at least, to the point of uh, having difficulties. Now, some racers are much more emotional about things at the start. But uh, he, he's been dealt a tough hand. Uh, two of his three sons died. Uh, one of them uh, led to the finals up at Indy in Funny Car when he and Don Prudhomme lined up, and he beat Prudhomme and won the event. His son, Jamie, had died about four days earlier. Mm. And... Uh, it was quite a moment then, and the folks that were around and were close to it, it's still a memorable time. There's uh, the, your call of it, as a matter of fact, that I heard earlier today. You can see it on uh, YouTube. I think that's still floating yeah. around. So, um, absolutely. And they were just one after another. And then the movie, the yeah. movie that came out as well. Uh, I mean, from a publicity standpoint, McEwing had an incredible career. He did, and uh, he was extremely knowledgeable in dealing with corporate people. And it, that pays the dividends that get you sponsorship and money and all of that. So he, he may not have been, quote, the racer that Don Prudhomme was. And that's not meant in any kind of... Uh, uh, disappointment it's just you don't run into Perdomes very often that uh, is so dedicated to it you could go to the race and hang around Perdome and you could almost see when the switch was thrown that it's time to go to work and that's what this was. This was their job. This was their income. We're, we appreciate you coming in. You've been great. Just a couple more questions before we let you go. And, and it's been so much fun having you in here today. When you look back at your career, how is it you want people to remember you? That's an interesting question. Um, I would say you are looking at a man that has been able to make a living, provide for his family, be set for the future, knock on wood. My mother, when I quit the radio and TV business to go run a racetrack, it took me 25 years to get my mother back to where she spoke with pride of what her son did because uh, it just wasn't a big deal for the general public they didn't have the tv shows showing you all the excitement and uh, all of the energy that's put forth on this 
But to me, it was the way to make a living, having fun. Retired NHRA broadcaster Dave McClellan, along with our buddy Bob Beck from the Great American Auto Scene, and he reported to us from the NHRA reunion in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to all of our podcasts right here on Radio.com or KNX1070.com. Or if you're listening to us on iTunes, make sure you subscribe there, rate us, Five stars would be preferred. And please write us a review. Let us know what you think of the podcast because that really helps. Hey, make sure you also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter and Instagram. And watch our videos on Facebook and YouTube. And, of course, talkingaboutcars.net. That's where another place you could find us and listen to our podcast. Until next time, I'm Randy Cardoon. Join me as we have some fun talking about cars.